So it has become rather popular today for people to give a lot of thought as to what it is they're eating. And they don't just think about it, they also tell you all about it. Uh, You all know somebody on keto? Of course you do, because they told you, I can't eat that. It's got carbs and I can only eat fat, which sounds weird. I know because if you're trying to lose weight, why would you want to eat more fat? But it's because allegedly you can trick your body into burning fat for energy instead of burning carbs for energy. The scientific term that is used for that is called witchcraft. Uh, no, it's, it's actually called ketosis, uh, hence the name of the diet. Uh, but uh, it's confusing because other people will tell you that, no, it's not about eating carbs or fat. It's about getting back to what our paleolithic ancestors ate. We all know that the paleos, they like to uh, keep super detailed records on the caves that they were living in, and they wrote, you know, recipes. And if we could just find that third of a cup of pterodactyl meat, we would be in business. But that, so that's the paleo diet, which is slightly less condescending than the vegan diet. But in my estimation, it is just all very, very confusing. You know, am I supposed to eat red meat or white meat? Is it whole wheat flour or coconut flour, right? I mean, am I supposed to drink goat milk or cat milk? You know, sorry, Mr. Jinxie, no milk from you today. Maybe just almond milk or cashew milk or anything but skim milk. You know, I'm like, good Lord, who even thought of that? Um, You know what's not confusing? Jesus. You know, I mean, if you're new to church, just answer Jesus on every question. You'll be fine. But uh, his message is pretty simple. Jesus Christ came to save sinners, of which I am the foremost. Generally, some people like to make Jesus sound more confusing that, uh, than he really is, usually in an effort to make themselves sound smarter than they are, which is why I started this morning talking about food. Because you know why there's 50,000 different kinds of diets? Because everybody's different. So I don't doubt that Weight Watchers works for some and Keto works for some and Paleo works for some and Vegan and Vegetarian Atkins and the Daniel Plan and Whole30, the list could go on. I'm sure they all work. But I wonder what would happen if we gave the same thought that we give to our physical diets, if we gave that to our spiritual diets diets. I mean, a lot of, I talk to a lot of people who are willing to make huge financial sacrifices about their meals, but they'll uh, make significantly less sacrifices when it comes to obeying their God. Or more frequently, and what I want us to chat about this morning is just like our physical diets, a lot of people like to project their spiritual diets onto everybody else because something worked for them, and so it should work for everybody else. Yet this is why I love the Bible, because a guy named Peter wrote a letter thousands of years ago to some folks he was ministering to, but God, in his wisdom, also had us in mind. And so this letter still holds precious implications for our lives today. And one of Peter's main points is that there are some spiritual principles that are going to work for every single person, regardless of where they find themselves in history. But then there's some other principles that might work for some, but in order for them to work for you, they might need to be tweaked just a little bit. Do you guys realize that? 
I'll give you an example from a different place in Scripture. In Luke, there's a super rich dude who shows up to Jesus one day and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to the guy, well, you just got to obey the law of Moses. The guy's like, well, I've done that. Like, since birth, I've been following that. So Jesus tells the super rich guy, okay, sell everything you own, give all the proceeds to the poor, and then come follow me. Guy's like, oh, no, not worth it. Uh, Eternal life isn't worth that. But then there's another super rich lady in Luke, and her name's Joanna. Her husband worked for King Herod, who's a super evil king, kills his wife and his own sons so that they can't inherit the throne, and uh, also helps aid in the assassination of Jesus, the same King Herod. But uh, Jesus doesn't tell her or her husband to sell anything. In fact, he doesn't even tell them to quit working for such an uh, evil empire. Matter of fact, Joanna basically bankrolls Jesus' entire ministry. So two rich people, two drastically different spiritual outcomes. The same overarching principle that we're going to learn from Peter's letter today. Here's how you can write it down if you're taking notes. My entire message in one sentence. Attitude determines action. Your attitude determines your action. Tanner just taught you a couple weeks ago that your desires determine your destination. That's the exact foundation we're going to build on this morning. That your attitudes are going to determine your action. So if you brought a Bible, go ahead and grab it. You can open it up to the very back of your Bible. Start flipping to the left until you come across 1 Peter. If you're new to the whole Bible thing, there should be a table of contents at the front of your Bible. You can find a page number there. This morning, I want to speak to you on the subject of hope holiness and horror. It's the title of my message this morning. Hope, holiness, and horror. These are the three principles that are going to be the same for every single person on this planet, but how they play themselves out spiritually in your life are going to be different for everybody. Now, if you're a guest with us or just back for the first time in a long time, we're in part two of a series of messages that we're calling Outlanders. And the premise is that we as Christians are in fact aliens on this planet. We're going through a letter, First Peter, and he's going to teach us that this earth is not our home. This is just temporary housing while God gets heaven ready. And so what we're trying to do is discover how we can live meaningful lives in a messy world. Uh, hopefully you found First Peter by now. We're going to pick up the excitement in verse 13. So, or your translation might say, therefore, so therefore, prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. Time out. Anytime you see the word therefore in your Bible, you should ask yourself, what's it there for? Like, what's the therefore, therefore? And in our case, the reason it's therefore is because of the verses before it. Keep in mind, verses 3 through 12 are actually one sentence in the original letter. And these 10 verses, as we learned last week, are Peter's thesis statement for what the rest of the letter is going to hold. And the primary lesson that we get from that sentence is that Christians are not different in terms of what we go through. We're different in terms of how we go through it. So Peter says, therefore, since you're not different in terms of what, but different in terms of how, therefore... Prepare your minds for action. 
and to exercise self-control. Put all your hope in the gracious salvation of Jesus. Or said another way, your attitudes determine your action. Notice the sequential order that Peter goes in. First of all, he says, prepare your minds for action. The actual translation of that from the original is, gird up the loins of your mind. (laughs) Sounds weird, I know. Uh, Back in the day, the uh, fashion statement of choice was a long robe and a belt, a sash tied around your waist. I'm sure if you've seen pictures of people in the Middle East, even today, not much has changed. They're still sporting these garments. Uh, And to gird up the loins means to tuck in the robe into your belt. Gird up the loins the, so you can actually move about more freely. Today, we tell you to tuck in your skirt, Nancy. You know, like look athletic for once. Uh, you ever get mad at your kids and you start rolling up your sleeves like, oh, no, this ain't happening in my house today. This is your dad ever do that to you? He was girding up his loins to punish the fruit of his loins. You see what I'm saying? Like that's the, what we're seeing here in this. And when it comes to your mind, which is what Peter is talking about, he says we're supposed to do the exact same thing. Prepare for action. Prepare your minds. I like to tell people, start thinking energetically. There is something about to happen and you need to prepare your mind appropriately for it. I say appropriately because there's an inappropriate way to prepare your mind for action. What's the inappropriate way? Well, this will never work. I'll never be able to do that. Why did this even happen? I need to go find myself. I can't get through this. This is their fault. If they wouldn't have done this, then I wouldn't have done this. It screwed up my entire day. You might want to jot this down. Negative thoughts will never lead to a positive life. Your attitude determines your actions, and negative thoughts will never lead to a positive life. The inappropriate way to prepare your mind for action is to consistently think negatively. Matter of fact, this is such a big deal that secular neurologists have proven that you can actually change the neural connections in your brain to reframe negative events in a more positive life which leads to, and I quote, less depression, less anxiety, a healthier heart, and a stronger immune system. Let that sink in. According to science, you can reprogram your brain to be more happy and more healthy no matter what you go through in life. You know what the Bible calls that? Preparing your mind for action. Thinking energetically. I hope you realize that most of the battles that you fight in this life will be battles of your mind. They don't love me. I'll never get the respect I deserve. I'm not good enough and never will be. No, 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 no. Negative thoughts never equal a positive life. We've got to prepare our minds for action. If God is for me, who can be against me? Why worry about tomorrow? Tomorrow's going to take care of itself. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Today was bad, but tomorrow is going to get better. I'm taking every thought captive to make it obedient to the Word of God. Positive thoughts, positive life. Just for the record, this is why you'll almost never find me on the face box. 
too much negativity on that mug. In fact, if I get on the face box and I just see consistently negative results coming from somebody, doop, unfollow. It's my favorite button. I'm glad they invented that. Unfollow. I don't need all that. And why, why am I going to bring that into my life? Negative thoughts never equal a positive life. I ain't speaking that over my life. I'm speaking positive things into my life. You need something from me, you can message me. Because I ain't going to listen to all that nonsense in my feed. I'm changing my outlook. Energetic, happy, positive. I'm preparing my mind for when negativity does come. Because we're not different in terms of what we go through, but in how we go through it. And so I'm just going to speak positivity over my life. And now what Pe- notice what Peter says next. He says, once you get your mind right, then you've got to exercise self-control. I would call that thinking clearly. We think energetically and positively first, and then we've got to think clearly. Unfortunately, most Americans are not doing that, like at all. 1,617 is the number right now. On average, Americans touch the screens of their phone 1,617 times per day. There are only 1,440 minutes in your entire day. So we're touching our phones more times a day than there are minutes in the day. Four hours of phone use on average. Think about it. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Every time you scroll. Uh, I was going to have everybody do this. I won't for the sake of time, but on your way home, if you have an iPhone, which I would encourage you all to have an iPhone, I'd rebuke the devil of Samsung in this place. But uh, if you get your iPhone out, go to settings, you click on battery life, last 10 days, it will tell you exactly everything that you've been on and how much time you've been on it for the past 10 days. You will be shocked when you finally put it into like right there, what you've been doing with your life. Four hours a day. The problem is, it doesn't stop there. Because on average, the American watches four hours of TV in addition to the four hours that they've already spent on their phone. Which is to say that distraction is now a full-time job. Eight hours a day. A compelling, compulsive in your mind, which goes back to the conversation that we already had about winning the battle in your mind. You do realize media companies, app developers pay folks millions and millions of dollars to help addict you to your phone and to the media. They're not doing that for free. Like they want you on that all day, every single day. And you got to realize, this has zero eternal impact on my destiny. You know, this might change your whole viewpoint about me, but I've never watched a single episode of Breaking Bad. Laura watched them all for me, okay? So she's something. That's not true. That's not true. My point is that, uh, you know what happened when I never watched a single one of those episodes? Nothing. I slept just fine at night. The world kept spinning 67,000 miles an hour. My heart kept beating. It was, it was no big deal at all. But you see what happens when you really start to think clearly? You prioritize your life. You determine what's really important. You mind the business of your busyness and the battle in your brain. 
And the scripture makes it clear that when you do that, you end up putting all your hope into the gracious salvation of Jesus. Why is that a big deal? Because you're no longer putting your hope into this broken, destructive world that's going to let you down. You're only looking to Jesus, the person and only thing in this life that will never let you down. I don't know, Pastor, long neck, ice cold beer never broke my heart. I stand corrected, okay? You know, write this down. Biblical thinking never, biblical thinking equals, always equals, passionate living. Biblical thinking equals passionate living. Think about this. What is hope? That's what we're talking about. Here's my definition. Hope is a passion for the future. Hope is an outlook. So you need to answer this question in your own life. Are you passionate about the outlook of your future? Are you excited about the destination that you're headed towards? Divorce? Bankruptcy? You know, any of these negative things? Are you excited about the direction you're going? Attitude determines action. The good news is, if you're not excited about the destination you're headed towards, you can change the destination. It's entirely within your ability. That's why Peter says the first thing that you've got to do is prepare your mind for action. And then you can start beginning to change your life when you begin thinking clearly, exercising self-control. Let's keep building on this idea. Verse 14, so your translation might say, therefore, what's it therefore? Well, once I've prepared my mind for action, exercise self-control, only then do I realize that all my hope can only be found in Jesus. Once I realize that, then I must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into my old ways of living to satisfy my own desires. I didn't know any better then before I was able to win the battle in my mind and exercise self-control. Of course I was going to slip. But now you must be holy in everything you do just as God who chose you is holy. For the Scriptures say you must be holy because I am holy. So what do we know? We know that we've got hope found in Jesus and only in Jesus because we're thinking clearly and exercising self-control. And our response to that is now we are turn our attention to holiness, not vice versa. It's rather common for people to believe that I've got to be holy so that I can have hope. No, we have hope, so therefore we can be holy. People say, well, holiness sounds super complicated. It's not. To be holy means to be holy gods. That's all holiness means. To be holy means to be holy gods. There's no area in your life that is off limits to Him. It means no priority of your life cannot be judged by God's Word. It means no part of your heart does not belong to God. Holiness means to be totally devoted. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says it like this, So whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. You guys ever seen that movie, What About Bob? You know that scene when Bob's sitting at the dinner table with Dr. Marvin and they're eating chicken, and he's like, Mmm! 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 You know what I'm talking about? That's what life needs to look like for you. 
every area of your life. You're just like, mm, this is so good. Doesn't matter what's going, what's going on. This is just the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. I'll say it like this. If something cannot be done to the glory of God, you can be sure it is outside the will of God. To be wholly devoted of God means no area of your life is off limits to Him. Think about that the next time you're trying to make a decision in your life. Can I buy this car to the glory of God? I don't know. Can I drink this diet soda to the glory of God? No, you cannot. Okay, that's just horrible. To just discuss. God is against a diet soda, okay? So that's not natural. Uh, can I go on this date to the glory of God? Just for the record, if you're under the age of 22, my policy is you have to go on a date with a group of people because it's too tempting to go on a date by yourselves. And so you need to be around a group. It's a different message coming this fall. Look forward to it. Listen to me now. Everybody look exactly right at me. God's not after perfection. He's after growth. I wish somebody would have told me that 20 years ago, that holiness only follows after hope. Because of the hope I have in Jesus, now my desire should be to be holy because I want to live how he's created the world to live. Your trajectory in life is never going to be up and to the right. It's going to be up and down and all over the place. But the closer you get to God, the more times you're going to be up and to the right. But of course there's going to be some down days. Those days should be fewer and far between the more you get close to Jesus. But I like the fact that Peter says, don't slip back into your old ways of living. Because how easy is it to do that? He says, but you didn't know any better then. That's because ignorance leads to indulgence. You, you don't know what this is going to lead to. You're ignorant of it, and so you just do whatever you want. But now you know better because you're thinking clearly. You're exercising self-control, which is why we have to start with hope. If you don't understand that Jesus loves you no matter what you do, then of course you're going to slip back. That's too much of a burden to carry. That's why Jesus says, my yoke is easy. Like strap on to, to me, let's join up. I'm going to be the one that helps you plow through this field. Too much of a burden to carry by yourself. But it, it's also why holiness isn't the same for everybody. Because don't, don't you see the progression? I have no doubt that some of you are holier than I am because you're further along in the journey than I am. But that's why I choose to get up every single day and try and surrender my day to God. God, make today about you and not about me. Keep me positive and understanding. Help me think clearly and exercise self-control. Let me bring praise to your name. Whatever I encounter today, God, help me get through it. Reveal yourself to me in it. So we've got hope. We've got holiness. Let's chat about horror. Now, in fairness, horror is not the best way to describe what we're about to read, but reverential awe didn't start with H, and I like alliteration. Horror it is. Watch this, verse 17. And remember that the heavenly Father to whom you pray has no favorites. Let that sink in. Anybody else know who their favorite kid is? 
I can tell you exactly right now. I'm not going to, but uh, God has no favorites. Mother Teresa ain't his favorite. A future version of you ain't his favorite. He loves you right now the same as he loves everybody else. He will judge or reward you according to what you do, so you must live in reverent fear of him. Horror during your time here as temporary residents. Here's our word again. Aliens, outlanders, sojourners. If you read your Bible from cover to cover, one of the recurring themes that you'll see over and over and over again is fear of the Lord. It's a big deal. One author describes it as fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I could have given you dozens and dozens and dozens of verses that start with the fear of the Lord leads to this. I chose not to. Here's why. Because you can't understand the verdict of the judge without first understanding the love of the Father. You can't understand what God is up to when you don't understand that the only thing motivating him is love. For God so loved the world. 1 John 4, 7 says, Friends, let us love one another because love is from God. It's his gift to us. God loves you. God is love. What's Peter say way back in verse 3? Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, could have also been translated love. In his great love, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. There's the entire message of the Bible in one sentence. Praise God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who died a death that was meant for you and gives you new life, a living hope, a living outlook for your future that's never going to perish, spoil, or fade. God secured that for you in heaven. Amen, somebody. This is the news of the Bible. And the eternal life that God's prepared for you is motivated out of love. But so is the punishment that awaits you if you decide not to live within the rules and boundaries that God has set up. We call that responding to his grace. So the other day, my son had a momentary lapse in judgment, hauled off and smacked his sister in the face. They were downstairs at the time of said incident. I was upstairs, but upon hearing the crying and a slam door, I knew something had happened. And so I go downstairs and Lana's laying on the floor wailing and through a cry says, Layton hit me. And so I, you know, has a visible red mark on her face. It's not, you know, hard to figure out that that actually happened. So I go to my son's room and uh, I'm, in my mind, I'm just going to have a conversation with my son. I'm calm in the moment. I know my daughter and I don't doubt that she provoked him and, you know, he hit her. And so I'm just going to have a conversation with him about how men use their strength to protect women A coward is who slaps around a woman, and we don't do that in this house. And if you want to slap somebody around, you're going to get slapped around if you do that to your sister. You know, I'm I'm, I'm calm. I'm just going to have a conversation. The problem is I open up the door, and he looks at me, and he says, get out of my room. How many of y'all know he was meeting the verdict of the judge and not... (laughs) 
the love of the Father. Um, probably not a great example because in that moment, calm went out the window. Love was no longer motivating the actions that were about to follow. But God, He only is motivated out of love. And so when we start thinking about this idea of fear and we're thinking clearly, we have to understand that God cannot continue to allow you to enjoy sin. It's what put His Son on the cross. And yet every person has a suicidal love affair with sin. You're not going to hear a lot of pastors tell you this, but sin's fun. If it wasn't, why would you do it? Why would you slip back into your old ways of living. And God has to, at some point, release the verdict of the judge because it's what murdered his son and held him to the cross. Every person sees another self-professing Christian doing something that they want to do. In their minds, they know they shouldn't, but they justify it uh, because everybody just wants to approval, you know. Everybody says they want acceptance. You, you don't want acceptance. You want approval. You want somebody to tell you that what you're about to do is fine. And so we are looking for approval and everybody else. One philo- philosopher, he said it like this, though. He says, it's no measure of health to be well-adjusted to a profoundly sick society. Is that not where we find ourselves? Uh, calling normal what God calls appalling for no other reason than culture has said it's okay No, we're going to reject the notion of normal when normal is destructive. Uh, They said racism was normal 30, 40, 50 years ago. People are still saying it today. No, that's destructive. Uh, At one point in history, women couldn't vote. No, that's not normal. That's, again, not helpful. In the 60s, everything was normal. Drugs were normal. You know, should we just legalize everything? Now, no, I don't think that helps us be productive in society. So we've got to start taking seriously the biblical ideas of calling and conviction, not normalcy and addiction, which is where the world has found itself. You know, who is it that said, if you don't stand for something, you're going to fall for anything? Well, a lot of people are falling away from God. You see all these stories in news media right now of these, you know, rock star Christians denouncing the faith. So I'll tell you exactly what we're going to stand for in this place. Hope, holiness, and the reverential fear of the God of the universe. Horror. And so here's my question as we get ready to close. What does your life look like if you got all of these right? If you had hope in Jesus devoted yourself wholly to God out of a reverential fear for His commands. What would your, how would your life change if you devoted yourself to those three things in that order? It's kind of an unfair question because Peter actually answers what your life's going to look like. In verse 22, he says, You were cleansed from your sins when you obeyed the truth, so now you must show sincere love to each other as brothers and sisters. Love each other deeply... With all your heart, for you've been born again, but not to a life that's going to quickly end. Your new life's going to last forever because it comes from the eternal living Word of God. So when you get this right, your life's going to look like love. Your life's going to look like Bob at Dr. Marvin's table with friends and fun and food and joy and peace and fulfillment. And it doesn't mean life's always going to be easy. 
it means life's going to be worth it. So let me tie all this together like this. I can't help but wonder if what God was trying to communicate through Peter is that our attitudes are supposed to be the same, like for everybody. Our attitude is in response to what Jesus has done for us. So everybody is supposed to have an attitude of hope and holiness and awe of God. But we also know that attitudes determine actions, and since we're each created differently, then our actions are all going to be different. How you love is different than how I love, and it's supposed to be. I love coffee. Some of you all hate coffee. How good is God that He's created this nectar of life and given it to us? You know, I love movies. Some of you all don't even own a TV. How do you live? We don't know. It's a mystery. But how good is God that he's given to us times of entertainment and relaxation? I love shoes. I love the way they smell. I love the way they look. I like to look in my closet and just notice how they're all lined up sequentially in which year Michael gave them to me, the gift of the humanity. I love how they accessorize with my clothes. Some of y'all own like one pair of shoes. Are you taking that Paleolithic thing way too seriously, man? You're like, like, need to get into, how do you even live? Savages, like, I don't even know what that, we love differently and we're supposed to, but can we just all agree that's part of what love is? I'm going to show love like this and you're going to show love like this, which is why Peter said we have to love each other deeply. Brothers and sisters, because we need each other in order to navigate this thing called life. That's why I, and I'm so thankful that God has put the people around me that He has. When I've gone through something difficult, and they don't come to me and say, Here's the recipe for success, they say, How can I help you? I'm just going to be here for you. What do you need? That's love. Because they have a hope in Jesus. Sometimes they have to hope for me because my hope's dwindling and because they have a reverential fear of the God of the universe and they're living their life the way God's asked them to. Sometimes we can help each other navigate the difficult storms in life. Your attitude determines your action. Your attitude is a choice. I hope you choose hope, holiness, and horror, the reverential fear of God of the universe and your life changes because of it. And the lives of the people that God's placed around you change as well. God, thank you for your word. Thank you just for the gift that we have to come and hear from you. God, I'm asking you to do now what only you can do and speak to our hearts, speak to us about the actions that you're looking for in our lives. God, our attitude needs to be one of hope in your son, Jesus. And in response to what he's already done, God, we want to live lives that make you proud. Help us see things in life for what they are, either temptations or bringing glory to you. As we continue to pray, I'm just asking God to do now that very thing. Maybe convict you of some of the things that you've got in life that aren't helpful that you can't do to the glory of God. They're hindering your ability to move further in life. I'm asking God to bring people into your life that can love you well. I'm asking God to 
to bring you opportunities to love each other well, deeply, in a brotherly affection. And I'm asking God to move in such a way that if you have not put your hope in Jesus, he'll speak to you right now so that you can have a hope for the future, secure in your knowledge of who Jesus is and what he's done for your life. God, forgive us of our sin. Change our hearts. You've given us this living hope in Jesus. Make our lives new. We believe in your son. We believe he rose from the dead. And the God of the promise says you can have eternal life and we look forward to that. We ask all this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. So we're going to close service a little differently today. In Scripture, we see, and we are supposed to remember the work of Jesus.